Nathan. Up with arm. Hello and welcome to the first ever From the Start podcast. Uh, a podcast designed to tell the stories of normal people who go on to do incredible things. And today, my guest uh, doesn't really need any introduction, uh, but I'm going to give him one. 27 years in the British military, 15 of that in the Special Air Service. Uh, I'm an honour to welcome to the show, Rusty Fermin. Rusty, welcome. Well, thanks. I'm um, looking forward to it. And nice to be a first, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I couldn't think of anybody better, to be honest, to be uh, the first for the podcast. So t- taking you back then, Rusty, uh, back to your childhood, back to Carlisle, uh, am I led led to believe that an encounter with some duck eggs led you to join the military? Yeah, um, well documented. I, I was an avid, um, still am, um, uh, look, you know, the birds. And in those days, we used to just, you know, there's no social media, was there? So we'd go out, me and my mates, and we'd go what we call bird nesting. Um, I think it's illegal now, but in my day, it was okay. There's nothing. And we came across some um, ducks <laughs> in a farmyard. Um, and the, the thing was that we picked up two of the eggs. I can remember that because uh, we didn't have any. Um, but the farmer came, so he put them back and ran away, but got caught um, and got taken home and got a bit of a, a spanking, not really for taking duck's eggs, but getting caught, really. So that was the start of it. And then, um, yeah, I was a bit of a handful, a, a long-haired lout, seven stone, wasn't going anywhere, nearly finished school. Um, useless in the classroom. Spent more time in the corridor those days than I did in the classroom. And that was the start of just about getting pushed into the army. Yeah, so uh, as you mentioned in your books, you were you were more into stonewashed denims and the Rolling Stones than, than sort of the military ethos. Um, am I right in thinking you, your dad made you join the army then? Yeah, um, he was ex-military uh, himself, Royal Army Service Corps. Um, and I've been, you know, at that stage, I'd been, as an early childhood, I'd been to live with aunties and, you know, passed around a bit after what my mother died. And then really from there, he saw the writing on the wall before I ever saw it. I never did see it. And I still didn't see it when he took me down to the army recruiting office. Um, And then we got an appointment. And finally, I I went down there with him um, to set an exam (laughs) for a test, whatever you want to call it. The physical test, um, I whipped through that without any problems. You know, the running and everything. That was easy. That's what I wanted to do. I never thought when I sat down putting pen to paper that I would end up in the Junior Leaders Regiment, Royal Artillery, at age 15, way down in Bramcott in um, Warwickshire. Can you remember the early days, Rusty? Because I know um, I served from 2000 to 2007, and one of my longest-lasting memories of them first couple of days in basic training where I'm not afraid to say that I probably cried myself to sleep a few nights thinking, what the hell have I done? Uh, can you remember them days? Because obviously you joined in a totally different time to me, Rusty. 
Yeah, yeah, I can remember them quite well. They're documented in my book, the regiment, 15 years in the SAS, you know. Um, it's all documented there. But I can remember it going in there. The first thing that went was my hair, you know, um, straight into the chair with the rest of the guys. <laughs> Gone, you know, went in with hair down to my shoulder and came out like an egg. <laughs> and that was the start of it. And thinking discipline, never had it, never had it. And then I was 15 years of age, sat down there with a load of guys, getting indoctrinated into life in the military. And of course, the first three months of basic training, September to December, I can remember it well. I hated it. 50 pound would have got me out of the army in them days. 50 pound. I couldn't get my hands on 50 pound. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't mind saying that I did cry myself, yeah, away from home, uh, making new friends, but doing something I didn't think I was cut out for. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, <clears throat> you went on to have a incredibly successful and sort of glittering career. At what point did the switch change, Rusty, from wanting the £50 to get out to thinking, actually, you know, I can make a career of this and I'm actually enjoying it? Well, I, I always wanted to be a professional footballer. Um, you know... <laughs> But it looked like that wasn't going to be the case. Um, at five foot two and scrawny, I didn't have clubs running after me, even though I thought I was a good footballer. Um, but once I got into the army and got those first three months out of the way, right at the end of those first three months, um, there was a game of football being played, and I was seen by the football officer. Well, he's a staff, he's a sergeant actually. Um, who watched the game, and then he said to me, I'd like you to come training when you come back off leave. He not knowing that if I had 50 quid, I'd never be back. But he said, and then you come football training with the um, with the, the regimental team. And if you do that, you give me the days, I'm, I don't know, Tuesday, Thursday, and game Saturday night. Well, that was me. All of a sudden, I could see myself as a tracksuit soldier. Okay. Get out of uniform as much as you can. Do as much physical training as you can. But if I'm going to be in the army and can play football, then I've got an interest outside of the Royal Artillery. So I was already plotting and planning what I was going to do, although it did change again in the end anyway. Yeah, so absolutely. That was, that was the start of that, yeah. So for anybody listening who may not know, the, the military are and was very keen in sport. So if you were... If you excelled at a sport, they would quite happily put you in a tracksuit and let you essentially be a, be a professional sports person. Um, now, Rusty, just took, touching on your football, um, you did have uh, quite a talent from from what I've read in your book and, and eventually it did lead to cl clubs potentially wanting to scout you. Um, do, does your love of football still exist? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Liverpool all, all my life. Liverpool supporters since Peter Thompson went there way back before I left school. Tremendous, yeah. Um, I, I miss it so much right now, um, but it's for a good reason. But yeah, I, I, I can watch football. And, um, oh, whenever I can is the answer to that one, yeah. And I did oh. end up representing the British Army um, in the end, which is a very high standard, semi-professional. 
and you're right, I did have a couple of um, scouts and stuff. And there's one bit in my book <laughs> where Bertie Vokes is presenting me a, a trophy, German Football of the Year in Germany. And I've been banned from playing football for having a scrap and drinking, um, only for a short period of time. But when I came back, we won 84 teams entered that day. I was captain over the next couple of days of the winning team out of the 84 teams. And a guy called Bertie Me, who used to manage Arsenal, um, was introduced as I was getting the trophy of Bertie Vokes. And I couldn't help myself when he was on about to be considered professional trials and stuff. Well, I hadn't, but I was playing games three times a week at times. Uh, even in Germany, I'm playing for German teams as well. And I said to him, well, that guy with you thinks I'm the fittest alcoholic in Germany. <laughs> with that, <laughs> that was my last contact with Bertie Me. Excellent. So obviously you started your career in the Royal Artillery, led to a few tours to Northern Ireland, and then um, you put yourself forward for the All-Arms Commando course, uh, Rusty, which led to a chance meeting with what became a long-term friend in John McAleese. Do you want to just talk, talk us through the All-Arms course and what it is? Yeah. Um, yeah, I just mentioned 4-9 Field Regiment, who, who was my start of my footballing career. Just very briefly, a lot of respect for them. Without them and the help I had from them and the people in 4-9 Field, still in touch with a lot of them, that is where... I really started to excel in the tracksuit soldier. Away from that, I did my three and a half, four, uh, four years with, just over four years, sorry, with 4-9 Field Regiment. Um, my feet started itching a little bit and I had two sets of friends playing for the, I was playing for the Gunners, which is the artillery football team. So you play for your regiment. If you're good enough, you get picked for the Gunners. If you're good enough again, you can be selected to play for the British Army. So I was playing football all the time. And then I had guys in 7th Para-RHA down in Aldershot. And I had friends in 2-9 Commando. And they both wanted me to go. They both had good football teams. And they both wanted me to go to Aldershot or Plymouth. Well, in those days, I looked at Aldershot and went, I'm going to Plymouth. Yeah. Uh, and I went to 2-9. That was the only reason. Um, so 2-9 Commando it was. I went there. And then on my commando course in 1974, yeah, um, it's the all-arms commando course, which is, they call it the beat-up, which takes place at the Citadel, which is just down the road from where I live these days. Um, and I met John McAleese. He was from 5-9 commando, independent commando. I was from, um, sorry, he, he wanted... He wanted to get in 5-9 Commando, and I wanted to get into 2-9 Commando. 2-9 is the artillery. That's why they call it all arms. And 5-9 would be the engineers, and John was a Royal Engineer. So that's how I met him. We became friends on the course. Um, very fit guy. Um, very strong. Great pal. Great jock sense of humor. And what a nice guy. And that's how I met John. And we went through the course. And we, once you pass your, your, your month at the Citadel getting beaten up, as they call it, the beat up, people drop out. Me and John were still there at the end, along with some other great guys. And once you're there at the end of that, 
you then go for further training down at Limston, the home of the Royal Marines, the commander of training center. So me and John disappeared down there, became big drinking buddies in between training and, and, and wanting to get the Green Beret. And then that was that, you know, um, we fitted in, we did our job, we passed the courses um, and everything we were asked to do. And me and John again, as good friends, um, we got that and right at the end of it, we were both presented, um, along with everybody else, obviously, uh, the Green Berry, a bit of a ceremony, you know, <laughs> not like the SAS, but they have a big ceremony, um, present your berry, you march around, parents and wives and girlfriends come down, or both, <laughs> whatever, <laughs> you know, that's the, way, that's the way it was in my day. We got our Green Berry. We stayed and had a few beers that night, obviously, like most people did, had a chat. And the next day we disappeared back down to Plymouth. Uh, John disappeared up to uh, five nine, one side of Plymouth. I went to two nine down at the Citadel, which is right on the hoe, the seafront. Um, and they're still there to this day. So that's how we met. That's the training we went through. We passed it and that was that to, to get that far so rusty move, moving on then to obviously the sas do you, do you remember when the first sort of fire was lit under your under your ass to coin the phrase to to go and attempt selection because i certainly know when i served um if ever you saw anybody around the the, the regiment or whatever who was um who, who was a good soldier it was always said that oh yeah they, they had a go at selection once but you know, didn't quite make it and, and I've heard that phrase many many times before and I've always been fascinated with the you know the the what point did the penny drop that you wanted to try selection and, and for what reason was it the challenge or was it the fact that you wanted to sort of be the best well at the time um I was having a cushy life I was representing the British army at football you know so but it, there was something missing there was something missing. John McAleese had gone all the way up to our broth and never seen him for ages, apart from every now and then he'd end up down in Plymouth, not knowing, no mobile phones, just by luck, by chance over the years. <clears throat> so he was in our broth, I was in Plymouth, and without even thinking about it, after I'd done a few years in Plymouth, once again I'd spoken to a few guys who went up and they'd actually done selection and passed it. They were X29 guys. Um, and they said, coming up. I said, oh, I said, you know, I just, I said, I'd like to. He said, well, look, it's a bank holiday coming up. We'll come and collect you. They found me in the laundrette. It's still there to this day, the laundrette in Plymouth, all right on the hoe. And they picked me up and took me to Hereford and I had a week end, long weekend, and I saw these guys with long hair and not a lot, not a lot of um, obviously good lads, but the ones I met were very good lads and still know some of them to this day. And I just thought it was so laid back and relaxed and where they lived in the mashers, as we call them, the old spiders. I thought, you know what, I'm going to have a go at this. My mates are here. And that was really the start of it. I went back, got training 
1976, I went training all over the hills um, down in the Brecon Beacons. Got me a course um, for the summer course of 77 in Hereford. I was happy with my fitness. I would have been very fit. And I thought, I'm looking forward to it. And lo and behold, before I finished the training in 76, um, I meet John McAleese and a couple of guys from um, Five Nine who were going to do exactly the same, just at the top, just before. And for, for those who don't know, Penny Fun is the highest um, peak in the district of the Brecon Beacons. Um, met John Mack. They they were coming up one side of it. We were coming, up, and just by luck, up near the trick point at the very top, is where we sat down and decided that they were doing the same as I was doing. Only they'd come down from our bro, thumbing on. And what's the chances? <laughs> what's the chances of it happening? Um, and we we ran riot down there for a couple of weeks. You know, um, there was no water, as you probably remember, 76. Um, the reservoirs were dry in, in the hottest summer on record. But, you know, I used to carry a couple of cans of cider with me. Um, there's no water. If there's no water in the reservoir, you ain't going to find any water up on top of the mountains. It, it, it doesn't work like that. But that's what we did. I wouldn't recommend it, but you know what? I didn't know any better. Um, and then John went back, and we went back, a couple of us went back to Plymouth, and there we were. That was it. I, I, I got it. And I was on the training wing in 2-9 Commando, so I was teaching you commandos to become commandos. <laughs> Great. Perfect. That was a tracksuit job as well, you know, because all I did was stay fit mm. and I loved it. Um, so I went back and then prepared to go on the summer selection. And that's again, the next time I met up with John McAleese was summer selection in Hereford. Just on selection then, Rusty, because again, this is one of the things that, um, I've always thought around and I never had the minerals to go myself um, when I was serving. So, you know, what, what is selection like? Because it's obviously kind of been, kind of been brought to the forefront recently with a certain teleprogram, which I know you have opinions on, um, but, <laughs> but, but, uh, yeah. but, the, but the real selection, uh, obviously it drags out for a hell of a lot longer than the, than the TV program attempts to portray, you know, what is it like on selection? Well, as long as people don't think it's anything like at all of what you see on that program that finished this week, which I've done some reviews on, please, please give the guys who do this election a bit of credit. I'm not after credit myself. It's hard work. And it always was. Um, and there are mountains involved you know, that you have to go and climb up, not water-saturated patches. It's mountainous. This is where the hard work you put in, you put tests to do. You know, it really is and was what I expected and probably a bit harder because of the length of the time that you do your selection the first four weeks to see if you're capable. Only then, after four weeks, you've done your training um, you go on to continuation training or you fall by the wayside or voluntary withdrawal. You know, that's set out for you. We're lucky that when we met up again, we got through the first month. That's where the hard work is. Seriously hard work. Um, you know, you can't help an injury. 
that aside, people got injured, people um, voluntarily withdrew because it wasn't for them. And the likes of us that wanted to go there, we carried on through. And then we had a nucleus of a big selection when I did it, were left at the end of the first month. And of course, John was there, I was there, and a few other lads that I knew, the Mink, Jerry, and not to mention a few other good guys who became part of our, um, wrong word to use as the click, but there were different groups of different regiments that sort of hung out together, if you like. And that's exactly what we did. So we had camaraderie, hard work. Um, we used to have a beer together. There was none of this. I'm not drinking tonight. I've got to go out on the hills tomorrow. No, far from it. It was the other way around. And that's exactly what we did. But we all got past the first month. We passed the tests and we were there at the end. John, unfortunately, hurt himself on the very, very last test, the um, the endurance march, long drag, they call it, about 40 or 42 miles or something. He uh, did something to the back of his leg. And unfortunately, that was enough for him not to pass it in time. So he had to come back on the next election, which was the six months later, which he duly passed anyway. And then we ended up in the same squadron later. So it was hard, but that's only the first month. You then go into the next best part of a month, which is the jungle phase. You fly you out to uh, Belize. Everybody went um, that had passed the initial month, went to Belize. And there again, your body's already worn down, shredded for the first month. And then you go out to Belize, which was um, a horrible jungle dirty jungle and you've got a month the best part of a month three to four weeks in there doing exactly the same again but in a much tougher environment you know you're on sterilitabs to make sure your water's okay you're on paladrint to try and help you stop getting malaria you've got your own stuff going on i mean i was bitten by hornets and you know this is all wearing your body down you know, and the bot fly that sucked, put eggs into my neck, you know, and then you have to get antibiotics and antihistamines to, to clear all that. But you're still there wanting to get through that final phase. But once the jungle was over, um, not every, it's not everybody's cup of tea, by the way. There's people voluntary withdrew, people taken off through injury, and already the numbers are coming down and down from whatever started to end up probably with around about a 10% pass rate of whatever started. So these things are telling you, me, I just wanted to, I didn't want to fail. That was the first thing. I didn't want to fail. I'd come that far. And even after that, I was so glad when we finished that and got back at the very end of it, having done all the hard work in the jungle. Uh, and it is a hard work, trust me, hot, humid, you don't sleep very much. There's trees crashing down every night. And about 8 to 10 to 12 hours rain every single day with thunder and lightning. And you're laid down in the middle of a jungle, can't see a thing. And you can hear trees coming down all over the place. It keeps you awake. <laughs> There's no question about that. That's where I learned to sleep with one eye open, if, you've, if I recall. But I did enjoy it, and I did pass it. Um, so, yeah, I was one of the, the guys who got through at the end. But more than that, funny enough, in a 
uh, a funny sense. I enjoyed it. For me, these were challenges. And I was still there. And my mates were still there. Even better. So once we'd finished the jungle training, we had a decent scoff, I always remember that, and a few beers. And then within two days, we were back on a flight and we're coming back to back to Hereford to find out the pass and fails and what would happen next. And that's exactly how it worked in my day. It, you know, it's not a five minutes uh, on a TV. This is serious stuff. So that was done. And then it was back for a bit of... Um, a bit more continuation training and stuff um, while the officers were doing their officers week, if you like, the ones that had passed, we filled that in with doing shooting and uh, while we were waiting to find out which officers were coming through. When they all finished and we got together, then it was the likes of combat survival. And combat survival was combat survival. Once again, no resemblance to what we see on TV. It's another best part of three to four weeks, all told. Your body's already, as I've said before, it's worn down. It's worn down. There's no rest. And now you know you're going to get dropped off somewhere with what you stand up in. And it was horrible. It was the BD trousers and the big great coat, caps comforter, you know, all that type of stuff. But that's what you stood up in. You got searched before you went out. Um, you weren't allowed to take anything with you. If they found you, your compass or your your watch, the, everything was taken off you and left behind in a sterile area until you were coming back off that. And that's it. We were shipped out to the Brecon Beacons. Yet again, we didn't know where we were going. Taken out in groups in the back of the vehicles and dropped off at different rendezvous points with further rendezvous points to make your way to but you're chased by a hunter force I think it was Gurkhas in my day and yeah big dogs you know big German shepherds and handlers who knew what they were doing and of course that was it you were down into two men um, two men groups if you like a couple of you so there were small groups with however many were left, I can't quite remember, but and their job was to escape and evade. Okay. You had certain points to get to, rendezvous points, where you might get a sandwich, a bit of bread, water, whatever else you could forage for while you were out and about is fair game. Suffice to say, we didn't find an awful lot. I do remember it being severely wet in the, when we were doing it. And once you're wet in those greatcoats and stuff, you know, it, you're going to hide into nothing anyway. Because they're like it's like five blankets on your back once they get wet. Um, and I mean wet blankets. Uh, they are, yeah, horrible for those people who remember them. But that is the case. And then we had to go and do the agent contacts as if you were escaping, evading. But... Anybody that got caught was taken in for questioning, interrogation, hence the resistance to interrogation, what you were taught, your number, rank and name, date of birth, bust. I cannot answer that question. It was another one you could use. That was it. That's acceptable. You don't give any information away about anything. 
if you get caught. However, that was quite interesting. Me and my pal, eventually he got injured. Well, not injured, sorry. He did, um, he picked up something um, which was, I didn't know how serious it was, but we were allowed to take some money with us when we left. That was it, 10 pence pieces. And we were allowed to make phone calls if there was, an, uh, uh, there was no radios and stuff. We were allowed to make a phone call from a phone box. Um, and when he was ill, I had to get him to a phone box phone up the, the staff and say, look, this is no duff. Geordie isn't well and he's going down with something and I need to tell you, right, wait there and we'll come and get you. Told him where we were. They come out, picked him up, left me on my own. They then took me, put me with another group. So there's three of us and Geordie went off um, to get seen to. He was okay eventually. Um, just one of those things. And then we ended up, we finished, we finished the, um, the, the escape and evasion I hadn't been captured, but there comes a point where they pick you up when you come to the, an RV, whichever one it actually is. And they say, right, it's finished for you. This is it. No duff. It's over. Well, you don't know then <laughs> if you've passed or, or what anyway. Cut a long story short, what they do then is they then whip you into the vehicles of people, who, the lads who are still there and have got that far. As you come in, they're putting you into vehicles um, ready to drive you another couple of hours back to somewhere, which you don't know where it is, and I never knew where it was, um, blindfolded in the back of a vehicle, Let's say there was 10 in each vehicle. I, can't, I don't know. I never saw them. Could hear them. And then finally you brought in, once I got to where we were, where we were, it was like, it must have been a couple of hours. I can't remember. But it was, it was certainly a two to three hour trip back. And then from there on in, it's um, interrogation. And different interrogators, a couple of male, female, and they take it in turns with anybody that's there. And I've got no how many, to this day, I don't know how many of the lads were actually in that compound we ended up in and who was interrogated by who, I don't know. I know who I was interrogated by, not by name, but female, a couple of male guys, backwards and forwards. But you didn't know how long you were going to be stood there in stress positions against the wall. Stress positions where you sat down all with blindfolds on. You can hear people moving around. You don't hear much talking, not even of the the staff. And it, but you can hear the dogs barking. You know, you knew there was dogs around still. And really, it was a play a game where you do your interrogation and I didn't get involved in any, nothing, apart from my number and can name date of birth. And sometimes I cannot answer that question. That was that. Um, was it enough? Um, I didn't know. I do know people afterwards we found out we were actually ended up drinking cups of tea with it. Just one of those things. It happens, you know, better to have tried and maybe failed than not to have tried at all. Mm. Um, so there was some, yeah, there was a few failed, but I was only interested in one thing. And I'll be honest, had I passed, 
And once they took the blindfold off for the final time, and they say, right, there's no duff, it's over. You still don't know whether to say thanks. You just don't know, right? But once they push you over, get a brew over there, you know, go over and get a cup of tea and stuff, uh, it's pretty much obvious then that what they're saying is true. Um, and that was the first time I spoke to anybody, and it was obviously the instructors I knew. Um, so I knew it wasn't just um, some some guy come up to me and say, oh, you've finished, you know. So that's how it went on. Um, but once I got that far and was told, well, for me, it was great because I actually cut the course short because I'd already done my parachute course when I was in the commandos. I was qualified parachutes. I didn't have to do that again, which followed on from this training. You, you know what I mean? And now that can last two, three weeks. Um, it's all weather dependent. Uh, if you can get all your jumps in, can you get your night jump in? You know, and I was lucky because once I did that, it was to, to my squadron. Um, and there's a few of us actually had already passed our parachute course somewhere before. And I ended up in B squadron, which is a squadron I wanted. And so did my mates. So they followed you through selection and then followed you to your squadron as well. Yeah, got the squadron. That's where my mates were. There. I said were there to start with when I first spoke to them and yeah. took me up to. So I ended up in the same bashes as I was there before the course ever started. Well, basically, we had a weekend on the piss. <laughs> um, and that was that, you know. So I was back in, I was with B Squadron, which is one I volunteered for. So, so Rusty, so, just take, just taking you back slightly, you mentioned earlier about the sort of ceremony and pomp of getting your green berry when you when you passed uh, the all all arms commando course. When yeah. when you get your when you get your SAS um, <laughs> berry, uh, I, I should imagine it's slightly different. Can can you remember that moment? Uh, you can't forget it, can you? First of all, you, you've, I've got the squadron I wanted, but I do believe, and <laughs> if I'm not mistaken in my day, I don't know what it's like now, but. I don't think we marched anywhere, you know, in all those years. I can't remember marching. I don't even think we had a parade ground. Um, I really can't remember. But what I do remember is when the Sergeant Major spoke to you, welcome to the squad, this, da, 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 da. get yourself over to the QM's department, pointed out where it was. You, 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 and I think there was what, me, Jerry, there was four or five of us. He said, go over there, tell them you're in B squadron, tell them I've sent you there, and they'll give you your berry, <laughs> um, and they'll give you your stable belt, and any other bits and pieces, and then come back here. And that's exactly what happened. Went across there, um, <laughs> the QM is, he's got his QM's uh, assistant, there's your berry, sign there. <laughs> you know, you still have to sign for stuff. Um, so we picked our stuff up there and look, look at each other and go, mm, okay, well, there's the accommodation over there, guys. We knew where the accommodation was from, um, from the months before. I was, uh, went over and chucked the stuff in there, and that was it. There, there's no well done shaking hands, none of that. Same as it wasn't when I left the regiment. It was none of that. It just isn't like that, and that's a bit I liked. Yeah. But I've got my berry, I've got my stable belt, I've passed the course, but I never for one minute thought, 
I'm an SAS soldier. I knew there was a learning curve and I knew it would take some time to be accepted. And it did. Yeah. What what was day to day life like, Rusty? Then once you once you'd got that berry and once you got that stable belt and sort of sort of posted to to B Squadron, what was what, what was day to because I would imagine from the you know the arduous slog of all the selection and training and you know it, it really fast paced stuff was was there a feeling of an anti climax or or, or kind of what did you feel like after? Well. I was quite happy because um, once we had our friends, the, the guys that I just passed selection with and got into the squadron. So they were on the same as me. So we knew each other, but I knew the other guys or a lot of them from when I was there before. So some were away doing stuff um, abroad and everything else. But then the day-to-day -day stuff was actually as part of mobility troop, my job now was to get into that um, and find out just exactly what an SAS soldier should be doing. Totally different. This now was being shown around by people who knew what they were doing, people who'd been there with some experience and done an awful lot. They were the guys now, if you don't follow them, you ain't going to last very long. You know, and I mean that. So you don't go there and think, oh, show, you know, chest out. No, you now start to learn, okay, I've made it this far. How did they get to where they are? Then it starts. And you know there's courses down the line you can do. It's going to take time. Um, you know what you're supposed to be doing now, the day-to-day -day routine. We have what we call prayers. Yeah. That just means they get together whoever's there in the squadron, lay out what's going to happen for the next day or two, and then go off and do it. So that that was that in my day. It was now, you big boys, you're grown up. Some of you come from other units. You're already corporals, sergeants, staff sergeants. You're now all troopers. Everybody loses their rank. And you start again. So you have to start at the bottom and work up. And that's exactly how it is. And that's exactly, um, I'm just glad that I, I did choose that route in the end. Absolutely. So to, to fast forward slightly then, Rusty, um, to Operation Nimrod in 1980, uh, when, when was the first sort of whispers you got that there potentially was this operation to go down in, in London? Um, it was about half past 11 on Wednesday, the 30th of April. 1980 and that's exactly when the operation started and it was just a bit of info that had been sneaked through no mobile, mobile phone social media as you're well aware mm. um, and we didn't have anybody on the ground but it, it doesn't take long um, for some sort of info to get passed around and really I think Dusty Gray who had been in D Squadron uh, went into the Met Police hard dock section, heard something on his radio and passed it through to the camp, saying he suspects there's something happening. And that's how it all started. Um, it, because we were on the SP team, special project team, it wasn't long before the old bleepers went off because we were waiting for a, an exercise. Once the bleepers went off, 
uh, an operational number came up instead of an exercise number. That's when we all disappear back into camp as quickly as you can to find out what's going on. That was a procedure. And that's what we followed. We got in there, we were told very little. And that's exactly the first time we knew anything about it. The exercise that we were supposed to be going on was put on hold because this was an operational call out, but we didn't know the facts and figures of exactly what it was. We were told limited, limited information in the early stages. So you got yourself down to London then, uh, Rusty. Did did you ever really believe that you would carry out the raid that was talked about, that you'd practiced for and drilled for and planned? Well, the trouble is, it was a first, wasn't it? And we were the first to be there. So there's apprehension, but excitement, I can't say there wasn't. Apprehension is one thing. Um actually to get into some form of operation as quickly as that apart we've done some operation before that but this was a big one in london but nobody knew how big it was going to turn out but we were part of it so really the it wasn't like an adrenaline rush the, the first thing was that we you know we skipped down not till about 7.30 at night when we finally figured out we are going to have to move down there. And we skipped down to Beaconsfield, got fed and watered there, then into, Hype, uh, into Regent's Park Barracks. Once we got into Regent's Park Barracks, all of us, that was about uh, midnight, just after I suppose everybody was in there. That's a whole squadron. Um, but then... The briefing we got there, I was remember, it was very limited. There'd been the first Cobra meeting, I think, ever in the country. That took place uh, in the afternoon. We got some info back from that when the head shed had been down there. That's the guys in charge of the squadron. They've all been down, been briefed. They'll come down and give us a brief of what we need to know. And it starts like that, really. So that was it, you know, that was day one, the 30th of April. Very little apart from movement and being fed. And then we had to wait another 24 hours because we were blue team, but red team got in next door to the terrorists. By then we knew there were terrorists, obviously. Uh, sketchy information, weapons suspected, this, that and the other. But, you know, by about three o'clock in the morning, 1st of April, they had a plan in place, not a good plan. Uh, they had a plan in place if something went wrong and they would have to be used to rescue the hostages. We were still in Regent's Park, that's blue, blue team. So we've got half a team down there, the red team. Blue team is still waiting, but red team got in there covertly, which was the idea without being compromised. And with that, we had to wait a further 24 hours before we got in beside them. That's the 2nd of May. And then we had a whole squadron next door to what was the six terrorists, the 25 hostages. <coughs> Excuse me. And really from there, it was looking a bit more realistic of 
being next door to them was one thing. You know, we were in 14, 15 Princess Gate, and they were in 16 Princess Gate, the Iranian embassy itself. So we had a feeling that we were right there. So we just went into a shift pattern. Red team would do 12 hours, blue team would do 12 hours. Swap over. <clears throat> Didn't mean you were knocked off, by the way. <laughs> Far from it. But um, as the days wore on, it gave us a chance to go back and do some um, do some training back down at Regent's Park. Half a team would go down, the red team. The blue team would go down, but we'd always have a team on standby in case. But now you're looking for the bigger picture. You're looking for what intelligence information's coming in, which can assist you with your planning on your preparation if you're required to go in and rescue the hostages. So there wasn't a minute wasted. And I take my hat off to everybody, really, that the guys um, who built... We started off, sorry, let me just go back one. Um, we had the floor plans that was put into making a model of the inside of the embassy. Very interesting to get you to feel around the six floors, 56 rooms. And then go over to Regent's Park Barracks. The Pioneer Corps guys, they were knocking up rooms in there built as per the plans, just out of head, um, wooden Hessian to give us an idea when we went there to train, which door open, which way, and, you know, rather than do nothing, we're doing positive stuff in case it was ever used. It might never have been used, but it, if it was, it's not as though you can go to live shooting in the middle of London, you can't do that. So we were doing the stuff that we needed in the background. We planned for a couple of different options. Uh, there was coach option planned for just in case. A stronghold assault was planned for, which it ended up, and a combination of a stronghold assault and a move, let's say by coach, call it an open air, to rescue the hostages. That was it. Um, and that's how it went on. Um, you know, that's how it went on until the 5th of May if you want to go that far forward now. So it was a matter of planning, preparing, rehearsing, other plans, more information, more inf intelligence, mug shots, IDs of your face and stuff, they were coming up. Um, we knew there was females, we knew there was male hostages. Of course, we knew Trevor Locke, Sim Harrison, so we knew they were down there. And it was now a matter of getting your head straight just in case. At this stage, just let me mention that it was a police operation. A lot of people don't realize that. It was a it was um, metropolitan police operation supported by the SAS. So they were trying to do everything. Max Vernon, the head negotiator, is a good friend of mine. He did a tremendous job by stringing it out for six days to give us that time to put the best plan we had together. Had it gone in on day one, could have been a different result. We had the time. We made use of the time. And eventually, we had a plan that I don't think anybody, if it was going to be used, thought it would fail. That's what the mentality of the guys are. It's up here. It's in your head. You know, train well. 
Yes. Armed well. Yeah. And we're there ready to go. The coils spring, if you like. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's... And of course, we were young and ready to go. Um, it was now just a matter of, are they going to give themselves up? What's going to happen? Are they, and it went on like that. Mm. And if you want me to go into the last day, I can do that. Yeah, absolutely, Rusty. I feel like that's a, I feel like that's a natural progression from, from that to the actual assault yeah. going in. Well, somewhere down the line, something was going to have to give. We'd been there for six days. And, of course, you know, a lot of it, it well, the nitty-gritty of it is in my book, Go, 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 which the film Six Days on Netflix um, was taken from. You know, that was, the, that was the inspiration for the film. But more than that, the last day, they were getting tired. Um, and, of course... Salim, the leader, I thought he was, I didn't think he was a very good leader anyway, um, but that was only me. And Fauzi Nejad, sorry, not Fauzi Nejad, Faisal, he was a second in command, and already they were pulling at each other, and one had an idea, and so on. Well, eventually, we were next door, everybody was armed, everybody was ready to move, if required. Still a police operation. And then, lo and behold, <clears throat> they shot Fauzi Nejad. They executed him. That's a terrorist executed him. Um, he was the press attaché for the Iranian embassy. Once they executed him and threw his body outside, they shot him three times, tied him to the stairs, shot him three times, and threw his body out the door. You see the pictures? You've seen the video. Where they go, the police go out, stretcher, put him on there, recover him. That was proof of murder on UK soil. Up until then, the Prime Minister, Mrs. Margaret Thatcher, my favourite, um, everything changed. Max Vernon, the negotiator, it's a different ball game now, is his saying. That's what he's saying to the leader. I know it is, Mr. Max. So, we are on extra high alert. We now have proof that the press attaché, not a young lad, has been murdered and thrown on what's going to happen next. Very quickly, the Prime Minister decides it's now an SAS operation. The police hand over control to the SAS, and it's now our operation backed up by the Metropolitan Police. We have a job to do. They have a job to do, and it wasn't long after that when we got the word that we were going in to rescue the hostages, and the mission was to rescue the hostages. So that's the 5th of May. Everything now is in place apart from we have to get into our final assault positions and try to get there covertly. Okay, and we did, but that took 16 minutes to get into position. But we got there covertly, apart from one pane of glass, which just before everybody was finally in there, 
broken. That alerted, as you can imagine, in a big place like the Iran embassy, it would sound quite loud. And that is where the boss had to give go, 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 the name of my book, <laughs> go, go, go. And from there, it was a matter of clearing six levels of the building, including that's including the basement, 56 rooms. There were 19 hostages left in there alive. There were six terrorists left in life. And on our side, we had a big team, but the guys who entered the building, approximately 32. We then had the reserve team come in after a number of minutes to help with the hostage evacuation at the end. We had guys outside to help with the hostage evacuation. We had guys outside um, to help with the smoke um, discharges to try and um, smoke off the front of the embassy if required. That was the plan on the way in. However, it didn't quite work out like that. The plan eventually worked. We went in, we rescued the 19 hostages. And once we'd rescued the hostages, there was five terrorists dead in there. One terrorist got out and the commotion from inside, it took 11 minutes to clear the 56 rooms. Okay, rescue the hostages, five terrorists dead, one terrorist outside then get outside and account for everybody with a burning building which was covered in smoke now i think there is burning you see it coming through the second floor windows downstairs was burning my job was um, at that time commander of the blue team we had the basement the ground floor and the first floor and the red team had the fourth third and second floor and we'd meet somewhere in the middle and that was that. And of course, um, everybody did their jobs. My job was um, as a team leader um, is when they finally came down the stairs with all this commotion of gunfire, flashbangs, smoke in the air, gas in the air, screaming. Um, certain of the women were falling on the broken glass that had come in through the window onto the stairs trying to ID people, rush them in, throw them out one person to the next, all the guys are looking. This is happening predominantly from the first floor, uh, sorry, the second floor, first floor, ground floor. The basement's been cleared. And that's how it went. It went all the way through there until they came down the stairs and then some shouting from upstairs from one of my guys. I couldn't hear a word they were saying, but there's a lot of pointing. And of course, eventually when Faisal I didn't know it was Faisal at the time until I turned him around. He had an hand grenade with him. I shot him on the stairs and he fell to the bottom of the stairs and we carried on the hostage evacuation to get everybody out in this burning building. However, upstairs, there was four other terrorists that were killed. And it explains everything. It's explained in my book. If anybody wants to see it, you know, it's all in there. Go, 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 all on my website. Um, and I just sign and send them from home. But I just saw I'll get that one in. Um, yeah. <laughs> but seriously, 
Um, it was as quick as that. Everybody out the back identified, male and female separated. Everything went well, but we did rescue the 19 hostages that were alive in the, and, um, and were accounted for. So yeah, once think... that was done, that takes us up until everybody now is out the building and out the back where the big green grassy bit is out the back and some are helping um to to separate and find out who's who very quickly see if anybody's armed out there and so on and so on and so on and that's how it went up until then yeah rusty just for just for people listening who may not be from a military background i think a few bits that uh, people who don't know might not really appreciate is that all this were done wearing a respirator in kit that probably wasn't designed for what it was being used for. Just how, how difficult were the conditions for you personally? What I'll say is, at the time, and this this isn't a real afterthought, but at the time, this is what we had. You know, we had good weapons and belt kits. They were good. The respirators, very hard work when you've got a hood on top. Uh, sorry, you've got... Um, what do you call it over it? Balaclava. And then you've got the gas hood. And you've got a pair of tanky coveralls on, just cotton coveralls. Uh, boots were rubber. Gas mask was rubber. But we trained in it regular. And we always train in what we were going to use if there was an operation. Suffice to say, most of it burnt. And in the burning environments, some of the guys did get burns and had to get burnt off them whilst they were in that 11-minute situation. So even though you trained in it, you still got to, that's what we had. And the two words I always use is adaptability and flexibility. The guys make things work. And I can tell you now, as it tells you in the book, not everything went right to start with. It was put right by guys who knew what they were doing. So. But yeah, you're right. It, to, after that, there's a big wash up, and then the lads got a lot of the Gucci kit, as I call it. Okay, the new stuff, the flameproof coveralls, everything. Ours was a learning curve. They got the benefits of it after us. So, um, and no complaints. It, it did the job. Not ideal, but it worked. I'm glad it worked. Yeah, absolutely. Um, after that, and Rusty, obviously, operation successful, rescue the hostages, kill the terrorists, obviously minus one who did get out. And um, how, how do you feel the fact that he's still, or, or last time I heard, living in the in the UK? Uh, how, how, do you, what, how do you feel about that? Well, you can say, you know, this human rights stuff, it can be used whenever... Basically, he had 20 years in jail. He went in in 1980, came out in 2008, lives in London, given a flat, probably on benefits. Um, but he served his time. And the thing is, there's nothing you can do about it. You know, um, I'm not happy with it. Mm. I'll tell you the truth. Um, but the fact is, uh, that's where we are. Yeah. Snowflakes of the century. <laughs> uh, you know, that's just me. 
Um, I've never met him. Um, but yeah, that's where we are with that one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so just fast forwarding a little bit then, the operation goes in, Operation Nimrod, uh, and then you return back to Hereford. Like what, from from a personal point of view, what's the feeling like after? Is it just like back to life as, as normal or, uh, you know, what, what, what did you feel like after? Well, I just remember the drive back and we just stopped at what they call Greasy Spoon which is on the 417, A417, which is Siren Sister to Hereford Road. <clears throat> we stopped on there, and we all stopped there, actually. There's a greasy spoon there. It was a caravan in them days. We sat down early hours of the morning uh, outside. We had the Range Rovers and everything with us. We sat down and beef burgers and cheeseburgers, whatever, and sandwiches, had a brew. And we were just chatting about it because we didn't know what the final outcome, um, the, the bigger picture would be brought to us in the future. You know, we'd handed all our weapons in to forensics. that They were gone. Uh, we'd get them back at some stage. So we just mooched back. There was no great fast drive. Stopped at a chat. Once we got back, we welcomed by the MOD police. Well done, guys. You know, this type of as you come through the, uh, the, the police gates. I remember that. Went down, locked all our vehicles up, unpacked our kit, ready to come back in the morning and then do everything, you know, that we needed to do to carry on, you know, all the little things like putting the torches on charge overnight. So if you need them again, we didn't have any weapons, <laughs> but, um, but suffice to say, we had a couple of days off, you know, um, before we got our weapons back. So. You know, the lads got out, had a few beers, had a chat about what went on, uh, as you would expect. And life went back to normal because I should have been playing football in the cup final that day on the, down at Kidderminster Harriers. And um, there's a team called Westfields. The manager of the team, Andy, is still the manager of that team today. Wow. Yeah. And I should have been playing a cup final for him. His brother stood in for me and scored the winning goal. How about that? Well, at least they won, Rusty, that's, yeah. That's the truth, mate. Yeah. I, although, uh, having run many football teams, I don't think uh, I'd buy that excuse if somebody rang me up and said, I can't come, I've got a counter-terrorist operation in London. But I'm sure you didn't say that anyway. <laughs> no, but he knew where we were. There's not a lot you can hide in Hereford. Yeah. Especially when you're that close-knit. He knew if I'm well where it was. Um without even being, we didn't have mobile phones and stuff. Yeah. But it wasn't a magician who had to work that one out, I can tell you that. Yeah. Obviously, the uh, the siege has become sort of synonymous with the SAS after that. Obviously, John McAleese um, was caught on camera, which obviously wasn't meant to happen. It was supposed to be smoked up. Uh, and there was one other um, way of identifying yourself, Rusty, as well. Do you just want to tell people who are listening who may not be aware of the story how you were so easily identifiable? Well, yeah, my hands. Um, watching the snooker when we when we were finally called, uh, Cliff Thorburn was playing Alex Higgins in the final of the Embassy World Championship. So we were watching a bit of that before we went. Um, and when I came in the time before, I put my gloves on the table, had a cup of tea. Predominantly, I always put my gloves, always, down the front of my body armour. So 
Somehow I put them on the table, got called out. I left my gloves on the table, watching the snooker, went outside and I realised I didn't have my gloves. But unfortunately, I wasn't going to go back for my gloves. I was a team leader. Um, and that, the picture you see with Rusty Furman with no gloves in the middle of the assault, yeah, they've been, they've been named as the most famous hands in Special Forces history. Been seen for years and years and years on that one iconic picture. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, have you managed to meet the other 400 people who were on the balcony, Rusty, that day that we now hear a lot of? It's 4,000 I've got rid of already. So, yeah, they're all there on the street corners, mate, trust me. And I think most of them are there now. Some of them are in Boltland, you know. Um, just expose them all the time. But they yeah, can't absolutely. help it. They can't help themselves. No, absolutely not. Um, so after that then, Rusty, obviously you continued your, your career Um in, in the special forces and then at what point did you realize that you know maybe maybe time was up for for the SAS and it was maybe time to move on was there sort of a reason or did you just kind of because I would imagine it's a fast-paced job you know is there a risk of getting sort of tired out now, now there's towards the end of my career there was a few things went on um, and uncertainties what I had to do is make a certainty of it you get promised one thing and then it doesn't work out. There's not an awful lot you can do about it. So I thought I've done, from a guy who didn't want to do anything in the army, I ended up as a 15 year old, I came out at age 42, 27 years. So I got to thinking about what I was going to do, which I was thinking about that when I leave, and it was quite obvious what I was going to do. So I just prepared myself and then I went and got some courses under my belt, which were paid for by the, uh, by the army. Um, health and safety, you know, NEBOS certificate, all the boring stuff. I didn't have a security background. I just needed safety and security. Not for me, but that's what employers wanted, isn't it? They need a bit of paper, you know, um, mad madness. But anyway, I did it. Got my NEBOS certificate, got my safety management. Um, I'm a forklift driver, instructor's course, <laughs> did that. So, but it was all done within my last two years. Um, when in fact, you know, it was two years I didn't like. It was two years I put up with stuff, but it was two years where I was still, but could have actually, if I, if I could have just gone out to the Gulf, in the, in the Gulf War, it would have been one of the best two years of my life. But it didn't happen, you know. You say 40 years too old. Okay. Um, there was older people not there, by the way. Yeah. But, you know, that, that's what happened. Um, and they decided I walk out the door, get my pension, and just piss off into the distance. Man. That's what I did. Yeah. Um, look, looking back then, Rusty, and a thing that has um, sort of read it said with the, the fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan that we've seen in the last sort of decade, um, did, you, did you suffer any sort of long-term effects from your military career, do you think, Rusty? Yeah, I've, I've been diagnosed myself. Um, I went down, to some, I got treatment for it. Um, it helped. And there, there are times when I think you can't go through that amount of time and it's very hard to see you don't get anything. And I'm quite a strong character, I think. And it's it's a hard one 
once I was told, you know, um, and then I had to go down and see the psychiatrist and so it was very difficult to take mm. because I didn't think it would happen to me. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Um, and it did. Um, it was dealt with to some degree. But I don't. I think eventually, in my day, I'm not sure they really knew in 1995, when they come out, 92, 93. When I was diagnosed in 1993, 90, somewhere in there, I don't think they knew what it was about. You know, you know, and of course, I was having to go all the way down to King's College um, from Hereford on the train to get seen to and then back. Eventually, I got fed up with it. Um, There's nothing local. It was get yourself down to the King's College. Mm. And lucky enough, I knew what the psychiatrist said. He'd been a, a medical officer in the regiment and he qualified as a psychiatrist. So he knew my background anyway. And I knew him personally. So he just happened to be there when I got there. So, so yeah, it, it, it can happen to anybody. You've got to deal with it. Yeah, absolutely. There's so, a lot of different, lot of different ways of dealing with it. Um, some people can't or don't want to. I just feel you have to get up and deal with it. And that's yeah. how I've done it. That's what I've done. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I don't want to keep you too long, Rusty, because as I can look out my window here, the sun is shining, and I'm sure it is wherever you are. But for anybody who's listening, where can we, where can we find you? Where can we find your books and things like that? Well, the simplest way is I've got two two ways at the moment. Just go to my website www.rusty-firmin.org forward slash shop, or just Google Rusty Firmin. And lastly, we've got a very good YouTube channel going now. There's nearly ten and a half thousand subscribers on it in a few weeks. Rusty Firmin SAS TV. And out of that lot, you'll pick something up if you want to. And I sign and send the books from home, by the way, as well as the prints. Take a look. Yeah, absolutely. Over the lockdown has been very good for me with the 40th anniversary of the siege, which was the 5th of May, 2020. Yeah, absolutely. So um, check out my social media as well. I'll post links to um, to Rusty's shop and to his uh, YouTube channel. So make sure you subscribe and, and check them out. Um, Rusty, I just want to thank you, and it's been a real privilege and an honour to to interview you and spend just an hour and ten minutes of of covering uh, quite with a with a light brush your your military career and and obviously your your uh, participation in the siege. So a massive thanks for your time. I, I really do appreciate it. Well, thanks for that. No, thanks for the invite. And to be number one is a great a great honour. I hope it goes really well for you. Any other time you want. I hope this won't be your last one. <laughs> if it's not like it but hopefully um, anybody listening um, I think that uh, Gary's got a good one there and um, I hope it does really well Gary yeah thank you very much Rusty so uh, again thanks for everybody who's listening all I ask is please like share and subscribe it tell your friends about it follow us on social media uh, from the start podcast on Instagram Twitter and on Facebook uh, and a big thanks from me um, and again uh, a massive honour and a privilege to interview Rusty so thanks very much and uh, I'll catch you next time don't forget my link yeah we'll put your link on we'll definitely get your link on <laughs> <laughs> alright Gary cheers Rusty thank yeah, you bye.